all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we are going to be talking about diabetes mellitus, or just diabetes is how most people refer to it as. Um, We see a ton of this here in the South. I see it in a lot of my adult patients, but we also have a fair amount of our kids and teens that have diabetes as well. And unfortunately, diabetes is on the rise in our kids and teens. And a lot of that has to do with the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in our kids and teens. But today, I thought it would be a good time to talk about it because I know probably several listeners out there are affected with this or maybe have a family member who has diabetes and you may have some questions about it. And so I have asked my friend, Dr. Ha Fawn, um, to come on with us today. She is a pharmacist, but she is also a diabetes clinical educator. Does that right? <laughs> Diabetes clinical educator. Um, and so she works with our internal medicine and uh, MedPeds clinics. And she also works some with the endocrine clinics as well, which are the endocrinologists are typically who we think of for our diabetes specialist. And so she's going to be here answering any of your questions. Um, she is a pharmacist too. So if you have questions about any medicines in particular, which I feel like a lot of people always have questions about medicines. Um, especially these days with the insurances changing all the time about what we can and cannot cover with medications. So if you have any of those questions, we would love to hear from you. We'll do our best to answer them. (laughs) You can always send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So Dr. Fan is a wonderful resource that we have in our clinic. Um, Not only does she help us with all of our medications, again, prior authorizations, but she does a wonderful job of helping our diabetic patients too. So I'll tell you a little bit how we utilize her in our clinic, um, and then I'll let her kind of tell a little bit about what she does. But um, for a lot of our diabetic patients, what we do is we see them about every three to four months, Uh, depending on what type of diabetes they have. If they're on insulin, I usually try to see them about every three to four months. Um, If they are not on insulin, then usually about every six months. So that kind of goes a little while without us seeing them. And so what Dr. Fan and her team do is they actually call our patients and follow up with our patients usually about every week or two, I would say, um, to check in on how their sugars are doing. And they do an awesome job of adjusting their insulin regimen, changing up their medicines, so that hopefully by the time they see us in three to four months, their diabetes is already better controlled. We can check their blood work and kind of track their progress and see how they're doing. So from a a physician's standpoint, um, it helps us out so much. Um, Also, our patients love it. 
Sometimes they don't always answer the phone. <laughs> yeah, it depends. <laughs> but for the most part, uh, we our patients, when they answer the phone, they uh, they love talking to y'all, and they love the fact that we can get their A1C down and get their diabetes controlled. And there's lots of patients that we have, have had A1Cs uh, up above 10 that are now, like, down to 7. So we're very appreciated, appreciative of her and her team. Um, I'll tell, let her tell her side of kind of what she does too and uh, maybe give a little background of what you, what kind of training you have and yeah. what you can do as a diabetes clinical educator. Yeah, for sure. Um, so like Dr. McLeod said, I am trained as a pharmacist. Um, so, you know, any questions that you all have about medications, feel free to give us a call. Um, but I do have residency training, which is very similar to physicians. Um, when they finish medical school, they go and they have to do residency training. So for us, it's more optional as pharmacists. So I have two years of residency training that's uh, focused on the outpatient setting. So working with patients that come to see us at clinic. Um, so that's what I did for two years. And um, I'm trained in more than diabetes. So I can do anything from um, blood pressure um, to helping patients who want to quit smoking um, to anything in between and all of that, I can just help with basically the way that I see it is if um, Dr. McLeod or anybody on our team tells us what a patient may be dealing with um, in terms of diabetes or hypertension or anything like that, I can help with selecting the medication or educating on the medication um, or just making sure that we get the medicines. Because I know there's a lot of issues, you know, we leave the doctor's office and we may say, hey, well, I'm going to pick up my medication, but then you get there and it's not ready. Yes. So I can definitely help with that. Um, but what I do in terms of our clinic, um, when someone gets referred to me, um, it can be anywhere from, you know, you're just interested in learning more about how to prevent diabetes. I do get a lot of patients on the front end um, before we have A1Cs over 10 or 9, um, where they're just concerned about, you know, wanting to make sure that it doesn't progress. So I can help on that side and we can always talk about ways to you know, reduce, um, like worsening of diabetes and making it, um, and preventing it earlier on. And then even on the flip side too, like Dr. McLeod said, um, I can do anything from daily calls. Um, some of my teenagers, we may require daily calls for, um, you know, making sure we take our insulin to every, you know, one to two weeks or every month. Um, and I think we do, um, efficiently help patients and meet them where they're at in terms of controlling their diabetes by the time they come back and see our team um, in three to four months. So, um, but we talk anything from food to medicine to exercise to um, everything that helps really contribute um, the progression of diabetes. And we really get down and make sure that we, you know, target what we can work on together and what I can really provide in terms of information to help you um, along your journey. So we've used some terms out there that people are probably like, what are you talking about with the yeah. A1C? Um, so the A1C is kind of our lab test that we use as physicians to measure how well your sugar or your glucose has been controlled over about a two to three month time period. So we'll have a lot of people that will come in and they'll say, oh, well, I, I was really bad last night and I didn't eat very good. That's my A1C is probably going to be up. But the A1C is more of a measure over time. So just because you ate bad one night, that doesn't necessarily mean your A1C is going to be up. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's how we use it to measure over time. That's also how we can use to diagnose diabetes. That's one of the ways we can diagnose diabetes. Um, the other way is to just check random sugar glucose tests. Um, you have to have two different 
occasions for that, or you can do just one lab test with the A1C. So a lot of times you'll hear us say that word A1C a lot because that's pretty much how most people use for diagnosing diabetes these days is to just go on and check the A1C um, as opposed to doing the random, the glucose test. So there's two types of diabetes. Um, There's type 1 diabetes and there's type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is usually going to be our patients who are younger. Um, And like Dr. Fan said, she does a lot of um, our teenagers, too, who are transitioning care from pediatrics to internal medicine doctors. Um, And those are going to be a a fair amount of type 1 diabetics because that's usually when you're going to be diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes is in your younger years or maybe some early 20s, too. Um, And those patients, unfortunately, are going to be on insulin for the rest of their lives because what happens with type 1 diabetes is it's some kind of autoimmune process. We don't really know exactly what happens to cause it. Um, There's still a lot of research to that. Probably some kind of viral insult is what we think that kind of sets the immune system off haywire. Uh, But we really don't know exactly what happens. But basically, your body attacks your pancreas, which is what creates the insulin. And eventually, your pancreas just makes no insulin. Um, So that's why type 1 diabetics, unfortunately, will always have to be on insulin. And why Dr. Fan and her team are such a good resource, because... A lot of our type 2 diabetics, on the other hand, um, we know that there can be a lot of lifestyle changes that you can do with type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetics start more as insulin resistance. So you still have some insulin in your body, uh, but your body just doesn't utilize that insulin appropriately. And so a lot of that is related to um, diet, exercise, obesity. And so we can do a lot of things to change that. Um, And you don't always have to be on insulin as a type 2 diabetic. Um, A lot of times, like I said, you start off as insulin resistance, but there are unfortunately a lot of cases where you eventually kind of burn that out and you do end up having to be on insulin as a type 2 diabetic. But like I was saying, uh, our type 1 diabetics have to stay on insulin. And so that's why it's so nice to have Dr. Fan's team there because they help us adjust that insulin. And taking insulin is not fun. No. It's, I mean, you know, it's not, it's not terrible because the needle is very small. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's not a very painful shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But checking the sugar is not fun. The finger prick to me probably is worse than the insulin shot. Yeah. I don't know, in my opinion. I hate a finger prick, so. Yeah, I I cringe anyway. Um, (laughs) But I think you bring up a good point, too, with um, finger pricks not being comfortable. And I'm sure maybe someone has some questions about some of the newer ways to check your blood sugar. Um, So there's something new called, like, continuous glucose monitors that maybe some people have heard about. So there's a couple on the market, um, and it just varies. Um, But the two main ones that I think of is the Freestyle Libre. Um, and, um, and that one usually you'll see on like people's arms and, um, they connect with people's phones and all you have to do is like scan to get your blood sugar, which is nice if we're not, you know, ones that like a finger prick. And then, um, another one is called the Dexcom and that can be applied to your abdomen or your stomach. Um, and that will also, you don't have to scan. It will just continuously read, which is pretty neat. And, um, as we're going along, there's more ways to access it because I know sometimes price is a limitation, but I, as we move along, it's it's um, been easier to get for patients. Yes. I actually had a patient um, 
Uh, so Medicare, one of the – we'll get into this after. Yeah. We'll, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll get back into this. But just a little funny is uh, one of the requirements Medicare used to have to get one of those was to check your sugar three times a day. and um, But they've since changed that, mm-hmm. and so Dr. Fan can talk about that a little bit. But when I was explaining this to one of our patients, she said – well, those people, whoever makes that decision must have never had to stick their finger. <laughs> she's right. Yeah. And she's answered right. It's very uncomfortable. And so these continuous glucose monitors are such a great new resource. So we'll talk a lot about that because I feel like a lot of people have questions. Um, but before we take a break, we'll go to Miss Sue in Beaumont. She's Good called morning. in. How you doing? Good. What's Good. going on? Well, I've, I've been wanting to ask this question. Years ago, I worked with, with another lady, and she had a son who would, one of those kids who would eat nothing but take out, you know, like chicken nuggets and french fries, you know, and you'd throw tantrums if you had to eat anything else. And I'm wondering, has anybody ever done a a study of prisoners and to see what if their dietary habits when they were kids had any influence on their mental health? I mean, I know it sounds stupid, but really, it seems like all these disturbed people have, have childhoods where they were allowed to eat anything they wanted to, which is mostly junk food. I don't know of anything off the top of my head. Um, not to say that there's not something out there, but not yeah. that I know of. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of hard to uh, study um, the specific population that you were mentioning. Um, but I'm sure there's just a general correlation in terms of, um, you know, worsening like eating habits in terms of how that may affect our mental health like long term. Um, but I don't think that nothing, nothing that I'm aware of that clearly correlates the two. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Miss Sue. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We are talking today about diabetes and type 1, type 2. We have Dr. Fan on with us, who is a clinical diabetes educator, and she is also a pharmacist. And so she is here to answer any diabetes questions that you may have, any medication questions that you may have. We would love to hear from you. So you can always send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So we kind of talked briefly about those continuous glucose monitors. um, And I feel like that is a big topic. There were a lot of the uh, Freestyle Libre, I feel like, Mm -hmm. had a lot of commercials here recently although I'm not, I haven't seen them as much now. Um, but uh, that is one thing that has made life a lot easier for our diabetic patients, especially those patients on insulin. So real quick, kind of before we go into that, explain why it's so important that we do have your sugars and yeah. we know what they're running at home. Why do you have to check them so often? Why is it important for us to know that as physicians and pharmacists when you're on insulin therapy? Yeah, I think it um, not only helps us, but I think ultimately it helps you too with managing your diabetes. I think it gives you a better idea of like, you know, I have a lot of patients too that are worried about getting like low blood sugars. So I think it's just good to generally monitor if you're on insulin, you know, before you eat, after you eat, first thing in the morning. But for patients that are not on insulin, just to know, too, like, where your control is at. Um, so Because that a lot of those numbers end up correlating with the, that A1C that Dr. McLeod was talking about earlier. So I think, you know, if we do check it 
often enough, you might be able to also know what your A1C would eventually be um, or potentially be. Um, so I think it just helps not only you, but also us and better adjust your medications. Because oftentimes, I know it's hard, like we said before, and just very uncomfortable to prick your finger, but all the information really helps us to make a better decision for you with your care. Um, so, and there are parameters for where those numbers should be. And, you know, um, if you are in one of those situations, we can always walk you through what those numbers should be um, and what numbers you're really looking for because no one wants to just check things and not know what they're looking for. Right. And it helps us to, checking it multiple times a day helps us know when to adjust your insulin Mm -hmm. because a lot of patients are on – kind of the way the body naturally works is we have insulin floating around all the time to kind of help regulate our sugars in our body. But when you eat, you know, you have an increased sugar load, so you need a little extra insulin. So your body will secrete a little extra insulin. So you normally have insulin floating around all the time. You eat, and you get a little extra surge of insulin. So a lot of our patients unfortunately have to be on lots of insulin shots Um, usually one kind of long acting insulin that stays in your body I don't know about 22 hours or so probably not a full 24 hours but close to it Mm -hmm. and but then we give you shots with each meal too Mm -hmm. so you end up taking about four shots a day knowing when your sugars are getting high when your sugars are getting low When you're taking four shots a day, that's kind of a lot. And so it helps us adjust that insulin, too. Um, So it's really important for us to have as many readings as we can in order to keep you safe um, from getting from it getting too high or too low. But also, you know, to to make you feel okay too, and to keep your sugar regulated. So, yeah, Um, we will go to Greg, who's in Columbus. Good morning, Greg. What's going on? Good morning. Thanks for having me. I got uh, diabetic too. My doctor told me about it. He said that I eat any type of whiteness, meaning no potatoes, no rice. Uh, stay away from, from canned goods because they got a lot of salt in it. And after he got through telling me about all this, I said, there's nothing left but medicine. So what do I need to do in order to, uh, you know, lose a little bit of pounds so I can, I don't know, I'm just getting distraught about that because I don't want that to affect my life later. And uh, I even have to get a toe cut off or a leg cut off. So I think are there, well, that was one of the topics that we wanted to discuss is that when you're a diabetic, you can still eat carbohydrates. You just have to be smart about it. And just like everything, you have to do it in moderation. Um, so I don't think you have to cut out everything, but you do have to be a little bit smarter about what kind of stuff you put in your body. Um, and if you're a type 2 diabetic, lifestyle changes is the first thing we recommend, depending on how high your A1C is. But if it's within reason, a lot of times you can try to cut some of those things out, start exercising, lose a little bit of weight, and you may not have to take a medication. Um, and Dr. Fan can probably elaborate a little bit about carbs and just what levels you can get in, but it may be a good idea to see a nutritionist, somebody that can help guide you through that so you know what you're looking for. Because, like I said, you don't have to completely cut everything out. Okay. Yeah. And what, what are the carbohydrates? Could you say one more time? We couldn't hear you. I said, what are the carbohydrates? Oh, yeah, that's what a great the- question. Yeah. Um, So I think going back to your previous question, too, you were mentioning a lot of like white breads and potatoes and stuff, and you were 
um, you know, not quite sure, I guess, what to cut out. Is that what you were saying earlier? Yeah. Yeah. So like Dr. McLeod said, you don't have to cut out everything. I think just really paying attention to what you have. So like sometimes what I'll talk with our patients about too is like with each meal, you know, we think of a good Southern meal, like, you know, you have mashed potatoes, you have greens, you have mac and cheese, you have a roll, and then you have a little, you know, chicken spaghetti, and then, you know, maybe a little piece of roast or something like that. And like within that meal, you know, what was that? I said, you're making me hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, like, you know, that's something that we all eat, right? Or, like, brings us comfort. So I think just reworking ourselves and thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to have a good meal, maybe I can have the piece of roast and then a roll and that's it. Instead of adding in everything else, because that might be a little bit overboard, right? And, you know, thinking about what Dr. McLeod said, our body can only break down so much at a time. And over time with diabetes, we have a little bit of resistance in that mechanism and we're not able to break down how we were before. So I think over time, you know, you know, we're always like, Oh, we can't eat like we were when we were kids. Right. You know, we could have had, you know, I could have had like four servings of mac and cheese when I was a kid, but I can't do that anymore. So, you know, we just got to be mindful about how much we have with each meal or sometimes where some people it's like, Hey, you know, I'm hungry. I want a snack and I want a cookie or like, you know, sometimes our weakness is like ice cream. So just being mindful of like, do we do that every day or maybe just like once a month or once a week and, just um, trying to cut out things like that. And sometimes things are hidden um, with like drinks. Sometimes we don't think about our drinks. Like we're like, oh, like, you know, sometimes we just like to have a little, uh, you know, a big thing of Coke from, you know, the gas station that we drink on all day. But like that kind of adds up if we're thinking about everything else that we've had all day. So just being maybe we can cut it to, you know, like one bottle or one can or a half a can and um, and just working on small things at a time instead of just like cutting everything out at one time. I really appreciate that. Yeah. But, Greg, I would recommend maybe seeing if there is a nutritionist you could talk to because she or he or she could be able to help you learn how to look for carbohydrates. Because, like Dr. Fan said, it's hiding in a lot of things that you may not think about. Um, so, to kind of like look for it when you're picking food out at the grocery store and where to look for your carbs and to go through those kind of good carbs versus bad carbs kind of thing. All right, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for your call. We appreciate it. And we have another caller, David. Good morning, David. What's going on? Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to relay some of my experience. I've been a type 1 diabetic for more than four decades. And about seven years ago, I started eating a much uh, lower carbohydrate diet. And I was on the pump, and I switched back to shots and after having used the pump for about 10 years. And I also went on a CGM, and my experience with that was that my hemoglobin A1Cs are down in the low fives without hypoglycemic episodes. So I can't recommend um, those basic uh, things because I found that with the pump that it seemed to be a much more stable uh, level blood sugar levels when I ate low carb with doing the Traceba uh, basal insulin and when I would eat a low carb meal, a little bit of the regular insulin that my blood sugars wouldn't have the, the surge of high blood sugar after a meal. And by doing that, by cutting out the high blood sugars, the average blood sugar, which is essentially the hemoglobin A1C test, allowed me to have uh, hemoglobins 
and I wasn't even trying to make it lower in the, in the early stages of doing this, but it went into the to the high fives, then down into the low fives, and uh, which is the same as a non-diabetic um, in terms of blood sugars, although I still have to give myself shots, of course. Um, but uh, I found that that combination was, was really helpful, uh, and I really enjoyed not having to wear a pump all day long. Mm-hmm. What I do recommend, though, is the CGM, and using the, the data from that to adjust how we eat. Um, it's a really good website, uh, All Day I Dream About Food, and mm, okay. the person who, uh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, oh, All Day I Dream About Food is a great website for learning how to cook low-carb desserts. Okay. Things like mashed potatoes can be replaced with cauliflower that's mashed with the right kind of extra ingredients added. Um, just basic things like that. You can make pumpkin pie with almond crust and swerve. Swerve is a great erythritol sugar substitute. It does not raise blood sugar. And that, in combination with liquid stevia, makes uh, a low-carb pumpkin pie taste the same as a regular pumpkin pie. I'm just saying that because we're coming up to Thanksgiving. But those tricks are great, especially if you're a parent of a child with type 1 diabetic, and you don't even need to tell that person that you're cooking a low carb meal, mm-hmm. so we don't need to draw special attention to it. But yeah, um, uh, you know, because it can be embarrassing uh, for right. a child. It's not embarrassing for me, but yeah. um, but it could be for a child. So if you don't even tell them, they're not going to know the difference. Especially, and it's hard to find those products in the grocery stores. We have to, we actually have to make them. Yeah. So, so it's work. It's mm-hmm. definitely work, but yeah. it, the payoff is so great because you feel so much better. And then, uh, actually, I did have some eye damage, but I've reversed it. Oh. I don't seem to have any other complications after four decades. So uh, I'm just providing that perspective, a long-range perspective of yeah. diabetes. Well, thank you for calling and sharing. And, and for people listening, when you say CGM, uh, he's talking about that continuous glucose monitor that we were mentioning earlier that – you can wear that is constantly tracking your sugars. Um, and so instead of having to prick your finger three times a day, you have the continuous monitor in, which gives us a better idea of how your sugar's doing throughout the day. So, mm-hmm. uh, but thanks for calling and sharing your story, David, and congratulations on A1C and the fives as a type one diabetic. That's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, we will go next to another David who is in Oxford. Good morning, David. Hi, good morning. Um, I, I'm a little confused on um, saying the boxes or the cans or whatever you're getting, um, where it lists the ingre- it lists the daily recommended allowance. Say on carbohydrates, it says carbohydrate explain there, and it says, you know, it may say seven percent of your daily recommended allowance. But then it's then in, in, in a in a, a lighter lighter text, and and it's also indented underneath. It may have, say, sugars, um, and it may be a bigger, like, say, 15%. And then complex carbohydrates, it may say um, 10% or 15 or 20%, you know, a a ridiculous number like that. And I was just wondering what that, does that mean, what what percentage is what? Because all the percentages are are, are in bold writing. Yeah, so I, I, I think you're an advanced label reader, it sounds like, because um, usually I try to just 
break it down by like thinking about carbs in general per meal. Um, so if we're reading a label, the big thing that I look at is just the number of carbs. So like, for example, something that I usually talk with patients is like, piece of bread or a piece of bread of a, of a loaf. Usually that's around 15 carbs. And sometimes there's usually fiber in those, uh, in those pieces of bread, sometimes depending on what kind of bread we get. And um, to me, fiber, and I don't know, you can tell me what your interpretation of it is, but usually fiber is almost like free. Um, so that makes me reduce whatever the total number of carbs, let's say if a piece of bread, like we said, is 15 and it has one gram of fiber, I would say that's like 14 grams of carbs that I'm ingesting for that piece of bread, um, you know, per meal. But I know a lot of us don't have a one piece uh, sandwich, but um, that's how I usually like interpret a label. And in terms of thinking about the sugar content and the salt content and all of that, I think all of that is really confusing to get into. But I think generally uh, looking at the sugar content, I just look for things for like low sugar, but I really am mainly focusing on the carbs that are on there. And, but everything does eventually turn into carbs and turns into sugar. But I think the main thing when we're reading a label is to look at the carb, uh, total. Well, so here's an example I have, and this, this is, this is a terrible can because, um, I picked up a red bull can, (laughs) but, but but here, but this is an example. I, I understand what you're saying. But this would be a better. It says total carbohydrates, 42 grams, 15 percent of daily recommended allowance. Okay, and then underneath, and then it it says total sugars, 39 grams, and it says um, 78 percent of the daily uh, recommended allowance. And 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 that's just that's confusing to me. Is it, yeah. is it 78% of the daily yeah. recommended allowance or is it 18%? Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I usually try not to look at the percentages because I think whoever determines all of that, it's very confusing and they're trying to trick us. I think I like to just keep it baseline and just look at the number of carbs. So like what I would interpret from what you read to us, just given the numbers with the number of carbs and the number of grams of sugar, I would say that's probably a decent size, like almost like a meal if I had that Red Bull can. (laughs) So that's how I would interpret that. Like generally, you know, what I tell patients per meal, depending on where we're at and what we're looking at and what we're trying to do, I feel like anywhere between 40 and 50 carbs per meal is probably decent and and enough for one meal so thinking about that in that red bull can we're, we're, we're having about a meal and this was just a red bull can I yeah i know and who knows what we had for breakfast saying. right <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it yeah that 78 percent and the 18 percent both under carbohydrates is what confuses me yeah i would yeah i i would think it more as the number and not really get into the nitty-gritty of the percentages i think that just makes it a lot more confusing i think thinking about it like per meal like if i have about 40 50 carbs I would just take it for the number and not necessarily the percentage because sometimes the, you know, whoever comes up with the total daily values and all of that, that gets really confusing what units they're going by, what the serving size is, and we need to be careful with all of that. So I think generally just looking at the total number of carbs and going off of that. Well, thank you, David, for your call. So, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that continuous glucose monitor. I kind of want to go back to that and see uh, because I know that's one of the things that that our caller earlier had mentioned, and we had kind of started the discussion about it. But Mm -hmm. um, we talked about why it's so important and how to adjust it. But I think a lot of people have questions out there because – they show all these commercials for the Freestyle Libre and um, 
they all sound so great. But then it's like, how do you get these? How do you get these things? Same thing with medicines too. You know, yeah. they're constantly advertising all these new diabetes medications, um, and how do we get these medicines? Because it's not just like, oh, let me just send it in. Uh, because a lot of times insurance is, gives us lots of hurdles to jump through. So, are continuous glucose monitors covered by insurance? I guess would be the first question. Yeah. Because that is going to be because you know we have type ones and type mm-hmm. two diabetics, like we talked about earlier, and not all of our type two diabetics are own insulin. So, can everybody get a continuous glucose monitor? Will insurance cover it for everybody? I think the blanket answer to that is not necessarily, but in the state of Mississippi, um, for Medicaid with our patients with type 1 diabetes, um, CGMs are generally usually covered. Um, and then when we get into the nitty gritty of all the other state plans that we have going on, it just depends. I think just ask your provider um, if you feel like you would you know, benefit from one and we can always try. But uh, going off of that, there is sometimes criteria that we need to meet in order for things to be covered. So um, when thinking about Medicare, like if we're a Medicare patient um, and we utilize Medicare to get our medicines and our supplies, um, they require, like Dr. McLeod was talking about earlier when she was telling her story, um, they used to require you to check multiple times a day in order to even qualify, but they have since removed that qualification, at least for Medicare patients. Um, now all you have to have is that you should be on multiple injections of insulin. Sometimes they'll cover for if you're not on multiple injections of insulin, if you're not a Medicare patient. But again, like I said, it just depends. Um, and we can always explore that as a team together um, if it's covered. Um, it doesn't hurt to ask, um, and we can always try again. <laughs> um But generally now, um, if you have like high excursions in your blood sugar, if you're worried about a lot of low blood sugars, sometimes that counts as criteria, even if you're not on multiple injections of insulin, and sometimes they'll still cover it. Uh, The cheapest one, if you just wanted to pay like cash, generally in the past was the Freestyle Libre, and it runs about um, $75 or um, per month, but then the upfront cost is a little bit more than that. So that one I think is the most affordable of the CGMs currently. Um, and then the Dexcom is definitely a little bit more pricey, um, but I think it is. they have different bells and whistles that make it a little bit more fancy in terms of reading your blood sugar continuously. Um, but I know with Freestyle Libre, they, they have come out with a new one that also has fancy bells and whistles, um, which we can also elaborate on um, if anybody has any questions on that, or I can also um, go into it as well. Uh, we do have another caller, Diane. I'm sorry. It, I thought maybe you hung up. So are you still there? I'm still here. Hey, Diane. Okay, I apologize for making you wait. What's going on today? Well, I'm going in for a physical today. And uh, I was wondering, uh, checking for diabetes, getting my blood count, if for the type of blood, what, was, uh, what should I look for or what, any questions I need to ask? Yeah, so a majority of insurance plans will cover a yearly A1C. Um, not all of them, especially because, you know, I was I mentioned earlier that uh, you can diagnose diabetes by checking just the glucose level, uh, but you can also diagnose it based off the A1C. And so a lot of people, uh, I mean, a lot of insurances will cover the A1C, especially if you've ever even had a borderline glucose in the past. So that would be one thing I would talk to your doctor about when you go in for a physical today. 
And this kind of yeah. leads me into another point, too. Um, we kind of have this new term out there. I mean, it's not new. It's been around, but it's kind of people are pushing it a little bit more. But the term prediabetes, um, which is where we look at the A1C bef- right before you develop diabetes. So we diagnose diabetes when the A1C gets to 65 But if you're in the range 5.7 to 6.4, that's what we consider prediabetes. And those people are going to be at higher risk for developing diabetes. So to me, the A1C is one of the best lab tests we can do um, because it kind of lets you know where you fall in that range. Number one, do you have diabetes or not? But number two, are you prediabetic? Because I think I've seen a statistic that shows like one out of three people are prediabetes, um, which is a lot of people walking around that are pre-diabetic and don't even know it, and that means they're at such a higher risk for developing diabetes. So to me, the A1C would be, when you're looking at diabetes, trying to get them to check it, um, if you can, and if it's going to be covered by insurance, because that's going to give you a lot of information um, just about your health in general and kind of where you stand. Okay, this A1C, is that a blood test or... Yeah, it is a blood test. Yes, ma'am. So it would okay. be it would be a blood draw that they would have to do. Um, okay. And like I said, you don't have to be fasting for it, or it doesn't matter what you ate the day before, because it's really measuring how your sugar has been over a two to three month time period. So that's what's okay. kind of nice about it. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for calling. And actually, yeah. the A one C now a lot of clinics. Um, have point of care A1Cs. Mm -hmm. So we can do like a quick, excuse me, a quick little finger prick, run it under a test, just like we would do a hemoglobin test or a flu swab, you know, Mm -hmm. and we can get the results within, I don't know, six or eight minutes. No, it's five. It's five. five. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking it's like five or eight (laughs) minutes, something like that. And we can have a result of what your A1C is. Now, Back to insurance, because I feel like insurance dictates everything in medicine these days. Um, But insurance won't pay for that point-of-care A1C unless you have a diagnosis of diabetes. Um, So don't go to your doctor thinking they can just draw the Mm point-of-care test um, if you don't have a diagnosis of diabetes. Um, But if you are a diabetic... We run some of those in our clinic. Our endocrine runs those mm-hmm. in their clinic. It saves a lot of time uh, yeah. because we get the results instantly, and we're able to kind of adjust your diabetes regimen while you're right there in the office, which is which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and kind of going off of that, too, um, with checking your A1C, sometimes um, – uh, insurance is again, I hate to talk about insurance, but they limit how often we can get A1Cs. Um, sometimes it's every three months or, you know, if it happens to be a little bit more, I think that's fine. But when it's be, uh, under three months, that's sometimes when they give us trouble. So sometimes I've had people be like, can you just check my A1C? Cause I just want to know. Um, and that's when it, going back to our other point of having blood sugar, sometimes that's more helpful mm-hmm. than just getting an A1C before the three months. Right. Cause we kind of know, based off of what your sugar is running, we can, there's a whole chart out there mm-hmm. that you can actually probably Google. I'm sure it's somewhere online that lets you know like what your sugar is running and what your A1C should correspond with that. So we kind of have that in our head, too, of what it should be. Mm-hmm. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens so on MPB Think Radio. We have had some great discussions about diabetes, and we've got a little bit of time left. Um, so before we end the show, I wanted to talk about some of the newer diabetes medicines that 
they plaster on our TV screens all the time <laughs> um, because I have patients come in and ask about these medications a lot. Um, and they're wonderful drugs. They actually are very effective at treating our diabetes. They're very helpful in preventing complications from diabetes, like particularly heart disease and kidney disease that we can see in um, long-term diabetes patients. Um, and so I wanted to just touch base with the, you about those because mm-hmm. a lot of patients want them, but it's sometimes a little difficult to get them yeah. uh, based off your insurance and who qualifies for them. So there's two big classes of medications that I'm thinking in my head that I wanted to go over. But the first ones are the GLP-1s, mm-hmm. um, which are the shots that you see. So like the Ozempic, the Trilicity, the new one, Manjaro. Um, and then there's the SGL-2 medications. And these are just our fancy doctor terms. Um uh, for medicines, but those are the Jardiance and the Farsiga, um, which you've probably seen commercials for those as well. They have their little catchy tunes that they, they do, particularly. I specifically had a patient come in and sing the Farsiga oh, jingle for I was me. Like, which one is it? <laughs> uh, the Fars- asked me particularly by singing the Farsiga jingle. That's how she remembered the, the medicine. Um, so let's start with the DLP ones because I yeah. feel like. That's Everybody the big of the Trulicity, yeah. Manjaro. Everybody wants these medications because yeah. they have weight loss. That's yeah. one of the big side effects of these medicines. Yes. So tell us a little bit. I mean, you don't have to go into a full pharmacology thing, but how does it work? How is it helping your sugar? How does it help people lose weight? And why does it work so well for diabetes? Yeah. Um, there's also a oral formulation, too, of yeah. a GLP-1. It's similar to the Ozempic. Um, so if we're a little needle-phobic, um, that, that is an option, too. But it actually doesn't work as well as the injections. Um, but generally, how they work is that what I tell people is that they generally make us feel more full more quickly. It just increases the speed in which we feel full um, as one of its mechanisms, but we could go into more. But downstream, how that works is that basically it helps you lose weight and then also improves your blood sugars um, overall. So it works on something called the GLP-1, and that's why we call them GLP-1 agonists. But we don't have to go into the full pharmacology of all of that. But that is how you end up lowering your blood sugar as well as um, losing weight through that mechanism. Um, like, uh, Dr. McLeod said, there's a lot of different ones. So some of them are every day, like the Victoza. And then some of them, um, the ones that have come out more recently are once weekly, which is nice, um, to not have to do an injection every day, but once weekly. Um, and most of these are like kind of auto injectors too. They're pretty easy to give yourself. Yeah. You don't have to like draw up medicine Mm -mm. or anything like that. You just... Put it against your belly and push a button. <laughs> yes, they come in pen form, all of them actually, besides the one that's in the oral version. Which is super nice and easy to use. Yeah. Um, so I guess the other thing I want to make a point of too that some patients um, are concerned about is if this is insulin. So it's actually not insulin. Yes. Um, it is an injectable medication is usually how I introduce it. Um, that, like Dr. McLeod said, has a lot of other benefits like helping you lose weight. But ultimately, the first thing that it's for is actually to help with your blood sugar. And the cool thing about them is too is that they're just so effective. Like they can reduce your A1C by like 1%, sometimes even 2 sometimes even more if you can couple it with just weight loss from other 
other ways, such as improving your diet um, or incorporating exercise. Um, so that's always nice. In terms of side effects of this, these medications, uh, one of the unfortunate side effects is because it's making you f- more full more quickly, some people feel nauseous. Um, but that does eventually go away, which is nice, like after a couple of doses. So that's why usually you might hear when you're started on a GLP-1 that we'll start at a little baby dose and then we'll work our way up. So it does take a little bit of teamwork to make sure that we communicate freely and make sure that we are adjusting the medications based on how you feel with the nausea level and how your blood sugars are looking because it is so effective. We don't want you to have any low blood sugars. So if you are initiated on one of those, just make sure you know, you're in close contact with your provider. And then the other class is the SGLTs, which is mm-hmm. just another fancy, fancy. term that we use. Um, but that's going to be the Jardiance and the Farsiga. And those are pills. Those aren't mm-hmm. injectables. Um, and those have a lot of added benefits, especially for our patients who have had heart problems. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, it's kind of become part of the heart failure regimen now, mm-hmm. um, even if you don't have diabetes. Um, and it also helps our patients with kidney problems, too, related mm-hmm. to diabetes. And um, so if you want to give a little quick yeah. little story about those yeah so um they are sglt2s and that's just fancy terminology for where it necessarily works in the kidneys but how it works is that it helps you excrete out that sugar through your when you use the restroom and when you urinate so that's how it gets rid of the sugar and that is a nice segue into what the side effects may be since we are like essentially urinating out sugar or peeing out sugar that causes a like area to create you know in that area and all of that it makes it you know a little bit more moist or whatever and that could be a grounds for infection so that's the biggest thing with this medication is to make sure that we like keep our um, like private areas like clean and dry as possible um, if we are on something like this and then also making sure um, that we stay hydrated since we are like urinating out everything um, or not everything but some things sometimes we want to make sure that we replenish and and drink enough water to compensate for that um and i know like when we heart have heart conditions and all that sometimes there's limitations and kidney conditions there's limitations on how much water we can intake so just making sure we have the nice balance um of what we intake um so real quick, because we only have like a minute or so left, but how can people get these medicines? Can yeah. everybody get these medicines? And what would qualify, what would make people qualify as a good candidate for these medicines? Yeah, we didn't talk about it, but there is like sometimes patients get started on metformin, and I'm sure we all have our story with metformin. But if that doesn't usually work for us, usually insurances will be like, okay, well, after you've tried this initial medication, um, then we can try other things like our SGLT2s and our GLP-1 agonists before for insulin. Um, So a lot of times this is more available after we've tried something called metformin, um, or sometimes they don't, insurances don't require that we try them. um, And sometimes we can try either of those or both of them um, for diabetes. Yeah. I feel like the biggest hurdle for these medicines are our Medicare patients. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly, it's not that it's not covered, but deductibles, deductibles and and the donut hole and all the things that just, you know, stress me out and patients out. But it, you know, once you get past that point, it's covered, but it's just like getting to that point. And so you got to put the money up front, which can be really frustrating. Yeah. And you can come see us. We can always help try work through those issues. Yes. Dr. (laughs) Fan finds ways to get everything. Everybody medicines. I don't know how she does it, but she's a miracle worker. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you, everybody, for your calls. I think this has been a great show, and if we miss something and you have a question, send us to kids at mpbonline.org. Thanks for Jay for being our producer and uh, Charles for being our call screener. Uh, this has been brought to you uh, by Mississippi Public Broadcasting, funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.